that every day, you know, while she practiced. So, you know, I could probably sing it myself, but it wouldn't sound like that. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just your glory, just your beauty, that, that there's none like you. We can sing this, you know, we can hear this and, and say, amen, that's true. The one and only, there's, there's no one like you. And so as we look at Revelation 19 this morning and, 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 and see that in the text, to see how amazing you are, Jesus, to see your return that, that is getting closer and closer, I pray that you'd fill us with that hope. Even as we read the words on the page, that you'd fill us with the confidence of your return, that that might change how we see this world, how we see this life. Please help us. Help us understand, understand better this wonderful passage in the book of Revelation. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. We are on the home stretch of the Revelation uh, study. Uh, we have about four chapters left, including this morning, Revelation 19. Um, do you like uh, illusions? You know, like, like tricks, that, things that trick your, your eyes? I, I don't know if you've seen any recently, but I have a few that I want to show you this morning. Do we have those? There we go. Would you say that's three posts or two? Depending if you look at the top or the bottom, right? Yeah, okay. N- next one. That's kind of fun. I, I think they somehow painted the bottom of the elevator to make it look like it was going to, you know, you're going to fall down into it. Could you imagine stepping into that, you know? Even if I knew it was painted, I think I'd have a hard time taking that step, you know, like, oh, crazy. Next one. This is kind of fun, you know. I don't think anyone's going to fall for it and try to walk up it, but, you know, interesting graffiti there, kind of, so. All right. Now, here's an interesting one. Uh, the question is, are the middle two red lines uh, straight up and down, or are they bent? Or are, are they kind of, you know, pushed out? Well, actually, they're straight, but they just appear to be pushed out a little bit. Okay? I love this one. Oh, I love this one. No, she's not just really, really short, okay? Um, this is totally an illusion, but you look at the guy's feet, you know, and you're like, the chair's in front of him, and yet she's so small, and, and, and like, how did that happen? Anyone figure that out? Like, how do you accomplish that? Do you, do you want to know how they did it? Photoshop. <laughs> That'd be smart, but no, this one was done uh, by, you see, the, 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 the chair legs are in front of the guy, and then the, the actual seat that she's sitting on is actually further back in the room. So the seat is not actually together. You've got the legs, and then you've got the top of the seat, and the top of the seat is actually sitting on the floor further back. And so it looks like a total chair, even though in real life it's not. Did you all follow that? Google it later and, and maybe you can figure it out. So, sorry. I'm sorry. Now, I didn't know if this one would work on the big screen or not, but does it look like the thing is moving or not? Do you see the movement? It's a static image, okay? It, it, it's not an image that's moving, uh, but if you look at it the right way, it looks like it's moving. Yeah, just like blink a little bit. Okay. There we go. 
And now that I've got you all confused, let's preach Revelation. No, I think it's helpful, I think it's very helpful when we think of illusions to see that as an analogy to what the world is doing with, with, with people. We've spent a couple weeks looking at Babylon, and Babylon, it says, it, it was the image of a prostitute, a woman that has seduced the people of the world, and they're living under this delusion, under this illusion that this is the way life is, that this is what life is all about. And so we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Last week we looked at the fall of Babylon. So the woman represented a city that represents a world power that's deluding people. We looked at how it's primarily a, uh, it seems like it's an economic, a financial gain sort of thing. But then there's also other evil that comes out of that as well, like the, the killing of innocents, the killing of Christians. We looked at how uh, human souls, bodies, people were being trafficked. They were being sold into slavery. But there's all of this evil undercurrent in this, in this wealth, in this luxury. So that was the last few weeks. This week, though, I would love to uh, juxtapose the, the illusions of Babylon with the reality of Jesus' return. Let me say it this way. Jesus' return helps us view life in the proper perspective. It helps us see through the illusions of the world. If we know Jesus is returning, if we're confident in that, then we're far less likely to fall for what the world offers as truth. Would you turn to Revelation chapter 19? I want you to see this here. Revelation chapter 19. It gave you a nice big Greek word to go with it. Perusia, uh, which is the Greek word that just means arrival or coming or presence. It's a Greek word that refers to Jesus' return. Good word to know if you're reading a theology book of any kind that uses you know, these proper terms. Perusia. Use that on your Christian family member this week. I'm waiting for the Perusia. What? Huh? You know, Jesus' return. Oh, yeah, yeah, me too. All right. Revelation chapter 19. Here we go. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. Now remember, this is right off the fall of Babylon. Babylon is done. The world power is done. And then John hears this. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. 
At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We'll pause there and say a couple things. First of all, and I think this is one of the world illusions that that people struggle with, uh, struggle with a lot these days, and that is this, that it feels like evil is never really dealt with. It feels like evil is never finally dealt with. Any of you get the Amber Alert this morning at 5 a.m.? You know, it just, it just feels like there's always something else that's, that's happening. And, 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 that, and that why aren't all of these things dealt with? A few weeks ago, we noted that slavery was being fueled by the luxury of the world. How do you get things done in the ancient world? Well, you get slaves and they build it for you. In our days, it's very much a different motivation for slavery. But human trafficking is alive and well today. Um, I pulled up a few statistics. I don't plan on showing them on the background, but I'll I'll read some of them. Um, Approximately 75 to 80% of human trafficking is sex trafficking. I mean, so we're not we're not doing it the old-fashioned way, where we're doing it to build things and labor and toil. Only about twenty to twenty-five percent is for those reasons. The rest is different. There are more human slaves in the world today than ever before in history. Today, it's estimated twenty-seven million adults and thirteen million children around the world are victims of human trafficking. That'd be about 40 million by the best estimates. Another reason some people are trafficked that I haven't mentioned yet is organ harvesting. About 30,000 victims of sex trafficking die from abuse, disease, neglect. You can purchase a person for maybe $10,000 for prostitution and expect to make 20 times back that amount that you put into it. And I could go on and on. I have a whole list. And some of it is not even almost readable in this context with families. But I will say this you see those numbers and you realize we don't have a handle on that. The world's not getting better when it comes to slavery. It's getting worse. Some estimate that in the next five years, human trafficking will overtake uh, a dr- the, 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 the drug, um, what would you call it, the money we take in from drugs as even a greater profit than that. Uh, it's just it's just staggering to think about. It's staggering to think that it's happening in this country in a huge way. And when you when you see those numbers, when you hear that, and think about what's happening, it can feel like some evil is never ever dealt with. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to work for the eradication of slavery. It doesn't mean that we, we should work hard. But there's a sense of hopelessness that's possible to feel. How do you get rid of evil? <clears throat> and yet, if you look at the Scriptures today, Revelation 19, 
<clears throat> the first few verses here show a, a, a bigger reality, a, a deeper reality, that, that the world stands condemned. The world stands condemned by God, and God's going to deal with it. Do, do you see the hallelujahs in chapter 19, like in verse 1? Hallelujah. And then chap, uh, verse 3, hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. It's a picture of the city of Babylon burning. It's the end of this evil world system that enslaves people and lives in luxury while other people starve to death. It's the end of that. And uh, this is crazy to me to, it's to think about, but hallelujah uh, is, is a praise to God. The last three letters there are J-A-H. That's a reference to Yahweh. Hallelujah. Yahweh. We praise Yahweh. Did you know that the word Yahweh is not used in the New Testament? at all probably a reflection of the times that that name was so sacred you wouldn't you wouldn't write the name of god down you wouldn't write yahweh down and the only reference we have you know explicitly to yahweh now remember you have like philippians the name of at the name of jesus every knee will bow you know the name uh, we have jesus saying i have received my father's name so the idea is Yahweh has given Jesus the name Yahweh. Okay, so you have those, those kind of verses, but you don't have explicitly, here it is, except for Revelation 19. At some point in human history, when the world is, is being dealt with by God, it's like, let's use God's name and praise Him because He's finally dealt with the world. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. He has acted in judgment and done with the world. And so when you see the smoke of her goes up forever and ever, that's verse 3. The idea is nobody will rebuild this city. Nobody's going to bring this world system back to life. It is done with forever. And so we say hallelujah. This is what we've been waiting for. That is the reality that we're left with in Revelation chapter 19. So if you feel hopeless when you see things in the world today, you remind yourself the world does stand condemned. It's only a matter of time. Let's go on to the second illusion here. <clears throat> the second illusion we should talk about is that often life feels like the main event that the, the, it, you live in the world and you live among people and, and we have a great fear of death, don't we? We want to prolong life. That, that, that's one of our highest goals in, in medical science. And I'm not saying it's wrong because life is sacred. Life is sacred. We should prolong life. If God has given us technology, if God has given us wisdom to get that done, uh, yeah, that's good. But, but there is something driving some of that and that is that we feel like Life is it. And so you can attend the funeral of someone who doesn't know the Lord and there is sorrow at a different level than what we as Christians experience. You, you've seen this. You, you've seen the hopeless kind of tears that people have shed. And that, that's true. That, that's real. If this life is the main event, if this is all we got then no wonder, you know, uh, you, you've got young people wearing those silly t-shirts that say YOLO. Have you seen those, right? YOLO, you only live once, right? 
no wonder that is a prevalent notion. Whether you wear the shirt or not, it's like I've got one life to live and I better enjoy it. This life is the main event. That's not reality according to Revelation 19 though. <clears throat> you look at the verses here and you've got uh, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. <clears throat> Sorry, my allergies are kind of coming out here. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Here is reality. Here is seeing through the illusion. This life, you're going to get 70 years, some more and some less. And then you enter a bigger reality. You get invited to the wedding supper, the marriage of the Lamb. We are the bride of Christ. And when Jesus returns, we enter into a spiritual marriage with Him. Marriage then is a metaphor for us being with Jesus forever. That's what human marriage is. The marriage of the Lamb is the main event. This life is not the main event. This is preparation for the main event. It might help at this point to go over some Jewish marriage customs. Uh, as you know, ancient Jewish customs, uh, you'd have a father arranging uh, a marriage. He's going to find a, a good bride for his son, and he's arranged this. There, there's a dowry that's paid. In other words, you pay money to the, to the father of the bride because you're taking her away from them. And in a sense, uh, uh, your kids are your financial security, and then they're, and they're losing a daughter and so you're compensating him for that. In later years, the idea of paying a dowry would also kind of be like, that woman is worth a lot of money. She is a, she is a fine young woman, and, and I'm going to give you this much for her because she is worth it. It was a way of respecting the fact that this is a wonderful woman. So the dowry will be paid. The engagement is set. But it's not engagement like we think of. It's betrothal. You know the story of Joseph and Mary, right? They're betrothed to be married. And so, in that sense, they already are married, in that sense. And yet, there's no consummation of the marriage. They're not together yet. But the betrothal could only be broken by divorce. Interestingly enough, the bride does not know the day of the wedding. The groom goes away, to prepare a place for her. Typically, he's, he's building onto his father's house. He, he's building a room there. And then, at an hour known only to the groom and the father, probably, right? He gets his friends together, usually within about a year. Can't make her wait forever. Gets his friends together, and they go through the streets, hooping and hollering, celebrating. And the bride is ready. She's got her clothing ready. The, 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 the guests are ready. They're, they're all waiting. They're waiting on the groom to return for her. And so then he comes and he takes her and they are married. They go into the bridal chambers and they consummate their marriage. I've read some people that say they could have a week together, just a week together before they start the party. And then within a week... You've got all of these people, all the, bride, all the guests that are invited, 
they're all waiting, right? They're all waiting. And at the right time, the bride and groom come out and then they celebrate for days. And all the guests are ready to celebrate. And you think, that is a lot of what we see when it comes to the return of Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. There's a spiritual metaphor, a marriage that's already happened. We are the bride. One day, the groom returns and we will be with him forever. And it's at a time only known to the Father. And so blessed are those that are invited to the wedding supper. Now, so the reality is, if I haven't said it yet, the reality is the wedding of the Lamb. Uh, now you also have people that are invited. Did you see that in this verse? Uh, where are we at here? Verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, there's a couple different ways to understand this. The, the, the people that are invited. Because on the one hand, the bride's not invited. The bride is the bride. Who are these people that are invited along with the bride? Well, you could say that our union with Christ is so amazing and so big that one metaphor can't capture it all. You know, so you could say, we're the bride of Christ. You could also say, we're invited to the wedding. We're like the guests. Because usually in weddings, the bride is singular and that the church is many. That kind of makes sense. Or you could say, those that would say that... Uh, the rapture happens before the tribulation starts. If God's going to take us out of here before things get bad on earth, then it could be that these people who are invited are the people during the tribulation. We are the bride, and they are the invited ones who will also be there. A couple different ways to look at it. I prefer to think that the metaphor is just so big that you can say bride, you can say invitations are going out. It's kind of a both and. So, the wedding's happening. This is it. Um, and that is the main event. Look, you know, if this, if this hasn't clicked yet, let's just say it like this. That, that there's no bride here that would ever believe that saying yes to the dress is the main event. When you go with your girlfriends and you look at all those dresses and look at the price tags and your dad's eyes are rolling back in his head and, uh, and, and, you're, and you're making the plans and getting the meal ready, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be cooking the meal and saying, this is the main event. You wouldn't be at the bridal shop and saying, this is it, I've waited my whole life to pick out this dress. This is the, nothing will compare to this. You wouldn't do that. It wouldn't make sense. It's the wedding. It's the marriage that follows. That's the main event. Let's not pretend this life is either. This life is getting ready for that. And in this life, you have a choice. Will you accept the groom or not? If you say no, then you spend eternity away from the groom. If you say yes, you spend eternity with Jesus, the groom. Okay, let's keep moving. Uh, we got more verses to cover. Here we go, 11 through 16. This is what Gabe read for us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Awesome. Uh, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. 
He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. Oh, we'll stop at 17 actually. That's a good place. Let's talk about Jesus for a few minutes, okay? Now, to talk about Jesus' return, like this is it. This is his return. You ever watch a movie trailer and get so disappointed because you kind of see the the beginning of the movie, the middle of the movie, the end of the movie, and watching the trailer going, why should I pay to see this movie, you know? You, you, in the previews, you've shown me the whole movie. Well, well, this is the trailer. This is the trailer, and it should get you excited because it's going to be amazing. Like, like, this is English language, right? Greek words translated to English trying to capture his coming back. How do you even begin to do that? I don't know. But, but this is... Now, the other thing I'll just make mention of uh, in verse 10, don't think I forgot about it. Uh, verse 10, John falls at the feet of the angel to worship him, right? Because the angel's saying these amazing things. John is seeing this amazing worship in heaven, and then he just falls down to worship the angel, and the angel says, Don't do it. This is verse 10. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what in the world does the testimony of Jesus as the spirit of prophecy mean? Well, revelation is the testimony of Jesus. If you go back to chapter 1, it says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is his words, his testimony that he told John to write. So the angel is saying that the words that you're writing about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's like the angel is saying, you better not write about how amazing I am as an angel. Because Jesus is the amazing one. The spirit of prophecy. If you're going to write prophetic words, they're going to be about Jesus, not about angels. He is the center of all this, not an amazing angel. It's the Son of God. And I think that's what he's saying. You dare not worship me and write about how great I am. You write about how great he is. And John's like, okay, I will. And then he writes verse 11. I see heaven standing open. And there comes Jesus riding on a white horse. Aaron Sharp, you should have amen me right now. Is she in here? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right, all right. It just should be noted, dog and cat lovers, that I see no reference to dog or cats in heaven. But I certainly see reference to horses. I'm just just saying it. Just saying it. Anytime. Yep, yep. That's right. You'll feel closer to your Savior on a horse. There we go. There we go. Hallelujah. <laughs> all right, all right. Here we go. <laughs> okay. So, Jesus is called... Uh, oh, I forgot to talk about the illusion. I'm talking about Jesus. Okay. Um, I think here's the illusion... That, that the world wants to put out there. The illusion is, Jesus is taking way too long to return. He'll never come back. You know, he, he's not coming. It, it's, it's taking too long. He, he's delayed. It feels like he's never going to return. And you're going to hear people say that. Peter talks about that whole, that whole idea. Where is his coming that was, what, that was predicted? Where is he? You know, we've been waiting 2,000 years. What's up with that? For 2,000 years, people have been expecting him. I remember my grandmother... Oh, man, 
she was always ready for Jesus to come back. Like, more than anyone in my whole life, she was like, Jesus is coming back. I remember when I was getting married and she was like, Niall, you don't need to get married. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's who she was. That was her heartbeat. You know, they talk about that crown that the people get for expecting Jesus' return. Like, she's probably got five of them or something, you know, because, because she was so centered on his... I think she's probably disappointed that she... Well, she's not disappointed that she died and went to be with him. But, you know, she wanted to see it. She wanted to be here for it on earth. I remember, I remember her saying that. Um, wow. As a young man, I heard my grandmother say these things, especially about marriage. I was like, what, Grandma? Uh, but I heard her saying these things, and I always thought, like, Jesus returned. That's, that's so far off. And I could never be like you, Grandma. I could never be that excited about Jesus' return, because i got stuff to do, you know? i got to go to college. Uh, I, 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 I want to be in a church. I want to be a pastor. I want to get married. I want to have kids. i got, I got a lot of things on my mind here. And Grandma would always be like, Jesus is coming back. That, that's the main thing, you know? And fortunately, as I get older, I do realize it's the main thing. It really is. This is the event we're all waiting for. And yes, we've been waiting 2,000 years, but don't let that make you think that God is somehow forgetful. Because you know what Peter says? A day with the Lord is like a 1,000 years. So to God, it was like a couple days ago that Jesus came to earth. You know, it was like Friday. And now it's Sunday. So we're a couple days into this thing. And one day, one year, he's going to come back. God doesn't, experience, God doesn't experience time the way we do. So don't let that frustrate you. Don't, let, don't listen to those other voices that say, you've been waiting a whole long time for this. Where is he? Here he is. John sees heaven standing open. He sees the white horse. He sees the rider who's called faithful. <laughs> Because everything he says he's going to do, he's going to do. He's faithful. He's true. Whatever he says, he's, he's going to do it. With justice, he judges and he makes war. He's come back to, to deal with evil permanently, to be done with it. His eyes are like blazing fire. He sees into our souls. His head are, on his head are many crowns. He's a king of kings. On him is written a name that no one knows but himself. If you ever think you're going to find out the end of Jesus and know everything there is to know about him, he is deeper than you know. He has a name that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. It could be the blood of his crucifixion. That could be the blood of his enemies. I, I tend to think the latter, considering he's coming back to, uh, as a conquering king. And his name is the Word of God. He's the Word made flesh. All of Scripture is pointing to him. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The idea of the sword is all he needs to do is speak. And his will is accomplished. That's the sword that comes out of his mouth. He just needs to say it and it's done. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's your next tattoo. Uh, some do point to this as a potential tattoo. It could also be translated this way. On his robe, even his thigh, uh, the word is chi in Greek. It could be translated and. 
It could be translated also or even. So it could read on his robe, even his thigh. It could, it could be designating that in this thigh area on the robe. And by the way, the thigh designates strength. He has this name written in strength. King of kings, Lord of lords. And the king of kings has come back to reign. So the reality here is Jesus' return is guaranteed to come at the proper time. His return is guaranteed. Don't lose hope. Don't get hopeless. Continue on trusting, believing, asking God to make you like those people that you know that also look for his return. People like my grandmother that were just so, so ready. Ask God to make you like that. It will change you. Finally. Finally. Uh, verse 17. Verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun, a notable position, who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and riders, and of the flesh of all the people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the Antichrist, right? And the kings of the earth and their armies were gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the final battle, right? <laughs> Interestingly enough, you're going to see another final battle in Revelation 20. But that will be next week. We'll wait on that. You've got the Antichrist taking up arms. And I think here's the illusion yet again. Doesn't it feel like sometimes that evil actually poses a threat to God? That doesn't it feel sometimes like the world can be so evil that how could God even get things done? There's so much evil in the world today. And, and somehow, for some reason, you know, the Antichrist says, we got a shot at this. Let's get everybody together. Or maybe he knows his doom is, maybe he knows his time is short. You know, maybe he already knows that. I don't know. But for whatever reason, there's some posturing going on here. Get the armies together. Let's fight this one that's on the white horse and his whole army. And apparently, the army that comes with Jesus, they don't have to do anything. They get to ride in, and, and, and then Jesus just does the rest. And the sword out of his mouth does the rest. He just speaks, and those people that oppose him are done. The reality is that Jesus will deal quickly and decisively with the people of earth that oppose him. It'll be simple, it'll be quick. Because when he speaks, it is done. And it says the Antichrist and the false prophet are taken captive. Of course they are. I mean, you think in a battle there's going to be casualties, but Jesus has already determined that these two will be taken alive. And they'll be tossed into this lake of burning sulfur, Gehenna, represented by the burning garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, that this place of, of eternal flame. And they're thrown in. God will deal with all of his enemies. So now we're at the end. We're at the end of this. 
how should you leave this morning? Like, uh, there's a lot of stuff here. I I tried to pack a lot into this one thing. You know, it's Jesus' return, but there's a lot here. Let me suggest a few applications that maybe, maybe you've already felt in your own heart. Sometimes I think the best applications are the ones I don't even give. Like, you've already thought of it because you've just been like, oh, look at that, I see that. That is, that is so for me. You know, I love that. Let me suggest a couple that maybe you've already seen. The first one is hallelujah. Does Jesus' return to deal with the evil on earth provoke praise in you? Can, can you get up and, and see the news on a Sunday morning and see the evil in the world, and yet join with the body of Christ corporately and praise Him like never before. If you view God that way, He's being patient right now. More people are getting saved every day. He's being patient. And one day, He doesn't have to be patient anymore. He's coming back to deal with the world. Does that provoke praise? Or does the evil in the world just overwhelm you and bring you down? Does it make you hopeless? Or does it make you hopeful because you know one day there's going to be this hallelujah that's going to sound like the loudest thunder ever because God has done this. Maybe another application you could get from this is the wedding clothes. Did you notice the wedding clothes? No bride is going into her wedding day without some sort of uh, amazing bride bridal dress, right? They want to dress up. They want to do this. Um, Our clothes, it says here, in verse 8, are fine linen, which stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Apparently, the righteous things you do in this life follow you into the next life and show up as white linen. White meaning pure. That they're given to you by God. That's an act of grace, right? God's giving me clothes to wear, but they represent the things that I've done. Isn't that a wonderful mixture of like cooperation here? I wouldn't do righteous acts if it wasn't for God saving me. So all the glory goes to Him. He's giving me these clothes to wear. Again, it's a gift from Him. And yet this gift somehow represents the things I've done in His name. Isn't that a wonderful mixture there? He gets all the glory and that I'm wearing these things that represent what I've done in this life. I made preparations. You went to the bridal store and you bought the dress and it's ready to go. When you do righteous things, whether it's Northwood Share, whether it's, uh, whether it's volunteering at the school, whether it's helping your neighbor, whatever it is, you're, you're getting your clothes ready. You're getting ready for the main event. Those are a few of the, <clears throat> the applications that I see here. I'm sure there's many, many more. But maybe the last one is, do do you expect Jesus' return? Do you live in light of his coming? Because if you do, that will change everything about this life. Because you look at it and you say, it's all leading towards that. We're going to close with Days of Elijah this morning. And uh, worship team, if you would start to make your way up.